Okay, today is June the 7th, 2011, and we are ready to prepare ourselves for the study of God's Word. You know our standard operating procedure. A few moments of silent prayer, rebound if necessary. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us another day of your grace. The days go by so quickly, and yet we see one constant, and that is your faithfulness. And we thank you for the portion of the word that we will study this evening. We pray that you will help us to understand it, to incorporate it into our long-term memory, that we can utilize it in order to be faithful servants to you. So we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Before we get going, I was going to read a, a really a short article that was in the uh, Israel My Glory magazine, the May-June issue, and it's from my favorite author in the whole book, and I, I'm not sure how you pronounce his name. It's S, I mean, uh, Z-V-I, and I pronounce it Z. I don't know if that's how you pronounce it, but anyway, <clears throat> this guy is... Uh, Excellent writer, and this is the first time that he gave some background on his uh, life when he was a boy and so forth. It came upon the 63rd anniversary of Israel becoming a uh, nation. <clears throat> so I'll just read. I don't know if I'll read all of it. We'll see. This May, it is 63 years since Israel became a state. I remember it well. Much time has passed, and I have grown much older. After everything I endured in my life, I am humbled and amazed that I am still alive. I grew up in Poland and have been without parents since the age of 10. Either they were killed by the Germans in Warsaw uh, in the ghetto or in Treblinka during World War II, or they died from hunger. I do not know. Realizing the Nazis were going to invade Poland, my mother brought me to a Polish orphanage. I was very blonde and did not look Jewish. She told me, be strong. You are no longer a child. You are a man. And with those words, she left me. I never saw her again. Soon the orphanage was disbanded and I was alone. I had no money, no food, and nowhere to go. Often I was jealous of those who had died. But I remembered my mother's words, be strong. And they were enough to keep me going. At one point, I found work with a German fa uh, a farmer. He was extremely cruel and brutal. He did not know I was a Jew. Had he known, he would have butchered me. He also did not know I knew German. One day, I overheard him ask his wife, What would you say if I kill this Polish swine? She replied, Fine, do what you want. Then I remembered my mother's words, be strong. You are no longer a child, you are a man. Be strong. That kind of reminds me of God's admonition to Joshua. I ran away before he could kill me. For six years I lived on the edge of death. When I arrived in Israel, I thought I would have rest. I wondered, how am I still alive? Why did I not die? Who was on my side protecting me from all the dangers I faced in Europe? In Israel, however, the situation was also dangerous. In 1948, uh, we were a few, uh, were a mere half million people. And we, we, when we declared our independence on May 14th, eight Arab countries descended on us like locusts, determined to destroy us. And again, who were they fighting? against people like me who had suffered through the nightmare of the Holocaust? This was not a nice welcome to Israel. No one received us with armful of roses. We went from the ship into the army. My job was with the strike force clearing minefields. I was told, you have only one chance. You can make only one mistake. And if you make a mistake, you are no more. I was very careful and I never made a mistake. I kept asking myself, who is on my side? Why am, I being, why am I not being blown up? 
Why am I not dead by now? But no one could give me an answer. One evening on Israel's first Independence Day, I was in Tel Aviv. An older lady approached me and gave me a Bible. Read this, soldier, she said, so that you will know who is on our side. It was the first time in my life I had ever opened a Bible. And this is what I read. It was Psalm 27.10. When my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take care of me. I had finally received the answer to my question. The Lord was on my side. I began to read the Bible. I had many troubles in life, but the Bible has been my greatest comfort and showed me the way to redemption. So I came to know my Savior. Why do I write all this? Because I never dreamed I would live long enough to grow old. I have a wonderful wife and a nice family of three sons, one daughter, and 16 grandchildren, and they all love the Lord and are active believers. We started a congregation a number of years ago with a handful of people, and today we are almost 300. One of our sons is the pastor, and some of our grandchildren minister there in music. After the long Villa Della Rosa that I passed through in the Holocaust, it is my greatest joy in life to see my family serve the Lord. Yes, it is my greatest joy to see what the Lord has done for us here in Jerusalem. And today we are able to do for others who need our help. And I am thankful to the Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry, which has been with us from the beginning. As it is written in Psalm 126.5, those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. That just shows the resilience of someone who the Lord is taking care of. Of course, the Lord looked through the corridors of time and eternity past and knew that Zvi was going to respond to the gospel, that he was going to have a great ministry later on in his life when he was an old man. And he saw him through all of this uh, very dangerous times. And it's, I don't know if you have the benefit of doing that. I'm able to do it in some aspects of my own life. I can look back and things that were confusing that didn't make sense to me in the past now make perfect sense with the benefit of 2020 hindsight and the doctrine to see that God had a purpose in everything that came to pass in order to glorify himself. And it's, it's great when you're able to do that. I'm sure y'all are able to do it also. Uh, that just, I thought, was a, a, a great testimony there. Now, if you'll open your Bibles to Second Thessalonians chapter 3. Verse 5, And may the Lord direct your hearts for the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. We looked at the steadfastness of Christ, and now you can turn to Romans chapter 2. Because we went to Romans chapter 2 to see a compatible verse. In verse 7, we have the antithesis of what we see in verse 5 of those who are stubborn and have an unrepentant heart. In verse 7, it says, To those who by perseverance in doing good, and that has to do with the steadfastness of Christ, we are to be steadfast in doing good. And of course, this is referring to divine good. We are to seek for glory and honor, and immortality, and eternal life. Now that, that verse, especially the last two words, got us on a subject that I have been meaning to teach for, I don't know, maybe a year. 
and just never did uh, get around to doing it, but I thought this would be a good time to do it since this is one of the verses that is speaking of eternal life, not in the normal fashion that we think of it as ongoing eternal life uh, in, at, that we get at the moment of salvation. So we're just going to fly through this very quickly, the doctrine of eternal life. Was that up there? Okay. Um, because we went over it once already, and when you get a new doctrine like this and you see it for the first time, you concentrate, you absorb all you can, and you're formulating in your own soul what you think about it, how you would be able to communicate it, and that type of thing. But very few people are able to articulate a definitive doctrine to defend that doctrine from one hearing. Usually it takes two or three or more. So we're just going to go through this quickly. The term eternal life comes from zoe ionios, which is zoe means life. I should have had, I changed this on my other, and I have live here. That's more like a verb. And ionios, which means <clears throat> to, uh, means eternal. You put the two together and you have eternal life. And there's, I have some verses here that give eternal life in the regular fashion, the way that we have always understood it. John 3.16, John 3.36, John 5.24, John 6.40, John 6.47, uh, Romans 6.23. You notice that all these have something, all these verses have something in common, and that is believing. It is the believing in a point of time, usually in the aorist tense, <coughs> sometimes in the <coughs> a present, <coughs> present tense that is used more as a participle, but it's always associated with what God does for us the moment that we believe in His Son. Over 40 things happen at that point, and one of those things is the fact that we have eternal life imputed to us is credited to our account. <clears throat> According to John 3.36, right up here, uh, when we believe, we have eternal life. It's not something that we are going to acquire. It's not something that we have to work towards. It's not something that we're going to receive yet in the future. According to John 3.36, he who believes the Son has, that's a present active indicative, eternal life. The moment you believe, you have it. Now, we all are sitting here and we have eternal life. We just don't recognize it because we don't really need it right now because we're still alive physically. But there will certainly come a time when we're desperately going to need eternal life. We are all, this, this body, every one of our bodies, eventually this mortal body of ours is going to take its last breath. And when that happens... We have to engage, like shifting a gear, into eternal life. Because the soul does not die, it just transfers to another location. And it's at that time that we are out of time and we're in our eternal state. Whether we are at home with the Lord waiting for the rapture, or whether we are that generation that is translated there's a difference between resurrection, which is those who have died. If the Lord came today, all of us in this room would be translated. This body would be instantly transformed into a resurrection body and we would no longer be on the regular time. We would then be uh, this eternal life that we have now would kick into gear. So we have it, but we're, I, I don't know whether to say we're not using it, but we're certainly going to need it. Let me put it that way. So we don't know what it's like to have eternal life experientially, we, even though we have it already. Uh, now, then we, <clears throat> we went to a, a different type of eternal life, and that's the eternal life that is not imputed by God at the moment of salvation. It's something that must be, be uh, worked for. You strive, you seek it, something that you are trying to acquire. This one takes effort on our part. And we saw a few of the verses, Galatians 6, 8. For the one who sows to his own flesh shall reap from the flesh corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit shall 
from the Spirit reap eternal life. And you'll notice that these, all these verses that have to do with what, with, with what I'm calling experiential eternal life have the future con, uh, connection to it because it's not something you have, it's something you're seeking. With regards to the positional or the imputed eternal life, those are, if you look at those verbs, you'll see that they're in the present tense. There's something we already have. Matthew 19:29 and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or children or farms for my sake shall receive many times as much and shall inherit eternal life. Now everyone every person who believes in Jesus Christ is imputed God's own righteousness and also eternal life. But you'll remember from the study that we've done in the past that in, in, not everyone is going to be inheritors. Everyone is going to be, all believers are going to be inhabitors, but only those who grow up spiritually, those who take hold of eternal life, those who are sons indeed are going to be inheritors. And so here you have in this verse, inheritor or inherit connected with eternal life, and that is given as so much as a reward, something that you work for. Titus 3, 7, being justified by His grace, we might be made heirs to the hope of eternal life. See, you have there again, we might be made heirs. What is, what is that heirs there? It's talking about inheritance again. And being an inheritor is not a given. It's not a guaranteed thing. It's only a potential. And only those believers who utilize their time on earth who grow in grace and knowledge, who make a commitment to make God and His Word their number one priority, those are the ones that are going to be inheritors and according to the hope of eternal life. Now, the type of eternal life that we normally think of, which is salvific, we don't have to hope for that, do we? Why? Because it's already ours. Another place in Romans it says we don't hope for something we already have. So this is, this is called zoe ionios, but it is a different type. It's the experiential type. Uh, John 17, 3, And this is eternal life, that they may know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom thou hadst sent. That's a different definition than living eternally, isn't it? 1 Timothy 6.12, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called. We all have it, but not many take hold of it. No one takes hold of eternal life if they are spiritually ignorant. 1 John 3.15, now this is one I didn't have last time. And this is a verse that is it, it's used by... Legalist, it's used by unbelievers, it's used by all types, and not many people understand it. I didn't even really completely understand it until I came to the understanding of this experiential type of eternal life. 1 John 3:15. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Now, red flags ought to go off automatically when it says no murder has eternal life abiding in him. Is murder one of the sins that Jesus Christ died for on the cross? Yes. Can a person, can a person be a believer and murder someone and still go to heaven? Yes. How do you know? Perfect example in the Bible. David. Yeah, David was a murderer, among other things. And yet he was called a man after God's own heart. When his uh, baby son died, he knew. You know, he was in, in grieving and he was not eating and he was just beside himself. But once he had died, he cleaned himself up and he went to, to eat and they couldn't understand. Well, what happened? Now he's dead and, 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 and you act as if everything is fine. And he says that... He will not come to me, but I will go to him. 
In other words, he was going to be in the same place that his son was. David knew that he was going to heaven because of God's grace. So we know from just systematic theology, specifically soteriology, Christology, we know that this cannot mean that if a person murders someone that they cannot have eternal life. Because there are people, there are believers who have murdered people and there's no place anywhere in the Bible anyone of ever forfeiting their eternal life because it is irrevocable. So what is, it, what is this? Now, there was a time that I looked at this verse and I said, okay, here's, the, here's where it is. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer and you know that no murderers has eternal life. Now, that no murderers is, uh, I'm going from memory, but I think it's may, pos. May is the negative. Pos means everyone or everything. So it would be not every murderer has eternal life. That's the way that I used to, to handle this verse. That would mean some do and some don't. They translated it no, and then we have a problem. Now, if you translate it that not every murderer has eternal life, that means that some do, and that would mean that believers who have eternal life, I mean, who a person who is a believer has eternal life, he could be a murderer, and he's one of the ones that uh, has a, a eternal life abiding in him. And I held that for that for a long time. But I have discounted that now, and I think that the real meaning here isn't in the word no murderer. I think the real meaning is the type of eternal life that this is referring to. Because when you hate your brother according to this verse and according to what the Lord himself says, you are guilty of what? Murder. Mental murder. And y'all don't sit there and look back at me and try to look innocent because I know there are times that you have wanted mentally to murder somebody. Maybe more than once. You maybe even have fantasized about it. I know that y'all don't like to hear that because we're all nice, clean-cut, pious believers here. But the Bible says that we are all wretched creatures. Our nature is to sin, and these things come upon us, and we can either take them and run with them, or we can recognize what they are, acknowledge it, be filled with the Holy Spirit, and then press on. So what I'm telling you here is this eternal life is the one that is talking about a... better quality of existence. You could call it that way. It's the superior spiritual life. You can, the Bible calls it the abundant life, the super grace life. And, if, and it, it would be true that there's no murderer who has that type of life in him, right? I mean, if you murdered someone, chances are you're not a super grace believer. At least, we, certainly, if you, if you had been, you had fallen off the wagon if you're going to murder someone. But in the context of this, what John is saying that even if, you are, if you're thinking it, you're guilty of murder. And if you're going around hating people, carrying grudges, and you're, in, and you're bitter, then all of that combined together means that you are not living that superior life. You're not utilizing the spiritual dynamics of the church age. You're not using your spiritual portfolio, all the, the grand things that God has given us as royal family. You wouldn't be using it, and that's what that verse is talking about. And then we, all I've done here, I'll just fly through this. There are several things in the Bible that has more than one meaning to it. Overcomers have a, has a positional and experiential uh, a meaning. You know, the, when, you, when you believe in Jesus Christ, those who have believed in the Son have overcome the world. That's a positional sense. But then in Revelation chapter 3, verse 21, it's the overcoming in an experiential sense. If you are doing divine good, you're growing, and you're looking for Christ to return, the rewards and decorations are in store for you. That's what it's talking about in Revelation 3, 21. By the way, if you want to find out where the Bible lists the rewards for believers, Revelation chapter 2 and 3 is where you want to go. There's probably more rewards listed in those two chapters than anywhere else in the Bible. 
And over and over it will say, to the one who overcomes. You could also say, to the one who has taken hold of eternal life. You could also say, to the one who has been experientially sanctified. You could also say, to the one who has gained super grace life. To the one who has experiential eternal life. That, that greater value of existence. All, all those are really saying the same thing. Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3 is where so many of them are. And then in inheritance, you have a positional sense. We've talked about that. You, in, you are inheritors of uh, the uh, eternal life in a positional sense, but also it's experiential. Saved. You have two main words for saved in the Greek. You have sozo and soteria. And both of those have both a positional and experiential sense to it. The problem is, in those words, most people, wherever they see the word saved, they automatically go to eternal salvation. Most of the time, it's not used that way, and they, they mix it up. Most of the time, it's used in an experiential sense, and that simply means you could, you could substitute the word delivered instead of saved, and it will, it will, be the, it will say, mean the same thing. However, in our vocabulary, in our vernacular, especially people who are Christians, when they hear the word saved, it only means one thing. But that's not what the Bible means. It, actually, many times the word saved is translated delivered. And then we have positional eternal life. We looked at that. And we also have experiential. That's what we just focused on. When a word or a phrase is used in a positional sense, God does the work. This is true with anything, whether you're talking about inheritance, whether you're talking about overcoming, whether you're talking about saved, eternal life, any, whatever you're talking about, when God does the work, it's perfect, it is completed, and it's positional. When it is used in an experiential sense, it's God plus man that does the work. I, I, I'm tempted to say it's man that does the work. That would be a better uh, balanced equation there. But it's not true. We don't do the work. I mean, we, God uses us to do the work, but we can't do the work. We cannot do divine good apart from God's enabling us to do so by the ministries of the Holy Spirit. Doesn't that make sense? Why would God reward us for something that He does? And God is rational. He is, he's got omniscience. And he doesn't do anything ever, never has, never will do anything that's wrong or halfway. And so if we're going to be rewarded, it means that we have to put forth effort. We have to do the work. And He recognizes that and rewards us for it. But even then, we can't do it on our own. That's how gracious He is. We're doing what... All we're doing is what He commands us to do. And yet when we do it, He rewards us. And when we do it, He's the one that enables us to do it and we still get rewarded. The positional sense involves faith alone while experiential sense involves commitment and work. I want to tell you, there's not many people, there's not many Christians that understand what I've just taught right then. And yet that's one of the major keys in understanding the Bible. It is as important as understanding dispensations. If you can't make these distinctions as to what is positional and what is experiential, you're going to be confused and get into false doctrine. If you don't know the importance of dispensationalism, whose mail are you reading, at what time frame, what's going on in any given part of the Bible... You're going to jumble it all together. Your eschatology is going to be bizarre and you're going to be confused. This is very important. Not many people understand it. I'm just going to fly through some of this. Eternal life is not only the gift of regeneration, but is what the Bible calls life indeed. 
that is cultivated by faith and acts of obedience. Now, let's get down where the rubber meets the road. We, we come on Sundays and we come on Tuesdays and Thursdays and we sing praises to the Lord and we do our best to learn how to function as royal family in the devil's world and we do our best to remember the doctrines that we have learned in order to apply them. But how often do we just get frustrated, discouraged, confused, befuddled, even angry sometimes. It happens. And that's not what we... We are called to live the abundant life. And when you do, when, when you're... What can I call it? You're... Uh, I don't want to call it the happiness barometer because it's not... We're not going around giddy all the time, happy. But whenever, let me say your contentment. Whenever your contentment falls, circumstances arise and they're trying to distract you from thinking divine viewpoint and they're trying to blur what you're supposed to be thinking and you succumb to it. We need to remember, if we're not living the abundant life, who are we to blame? We're not going, how can we blame God? He's the one that has done everything He's revealed in His Word. I want you to live the abundant life. It's all about the experiential. The positional is done. It's in the past. It's a done deal. We're all going to heaven. But let's get over that. I mean, we, we want to have appreciation for it and gratitude. But we have the issues of the day to face. And the Bible says take hold of eternal life. Be alert. Be on your guard. Study and grow and apply. That's the abundant life. No one that is in spiritual ignorance can live the abundant life any more than I, I could go to Boeing and they say, okay, we're just going to give you a job. You're over the whole plant. And you tell them all what to do. They'll do anything that you want to do. How successful am I going to be in that? I know that a plane has two wings and a front and a back. But that's how some believers think they can live the Christian life. Oh, I know John 3.16, and I can sing just as I am, and I can get all emotional and choked up over amazing grace, and they think that's the Christian life. And then they go out and they completely fail. They are casualties in the angelic conflict, and they wonder why. To live the abundant life, you have to learn how to do it. And there are so many exhortations in the Bible for us to don't give up your confidence. Don't give up the hope. It's all going to be worth it. Stay the course. Hold on. I'm coming. <laughs> I didn't find that yet, but I know it's, a, it's one. Michael, did you have something? I can't, they can't hear you on the tape. I don't want any more emails. We, we can't hear them when they say something. Testing. Okay. Whoa. <laughs> Go ahead. Okay. Uh, no, uh, made me think of First uh, Peter, was it 1, 3 through 5, or 1, 4, um, I believe it is, about uh, God giving us uh, his precious and magnificent promises that we m might become partakers yeah, of the divine Might, nature. might, right. Uh -huh. Right. And the divine nature would be that eternal life that, that you're speaking of. And uh, also, um, uh, St. Hodges refers to that as, as uh, the resurrection life. Like we can, have, we can experience what we'll have in the future in, in right now in, with eternal life, which he calls the, the experience in the re resurrection life now. Right. I thought that's interesting also. Here, here's First Peter 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is perishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith, salvation, ready to be received, uh, be uh, revealed in the last time. And uh, it goes on, or is it... Uh, uh, did you say first or second Peter? Did you? Uh, second Peter. Second Peter. I thought you said first Peter. Those are pretty good verses, aren't they? 
Okay, see, this is Second Peter 1, 3. Seeing that His divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. For by these He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become... Here, there it is right there. For by those great precious promises you may become partakers of the divine nature. Now, I had, there was one time, let me put it this way. There was a person in my life that had accused me of not even being a believer because uh, they had a clipboard and they were following me around pretty close, evidently. And my life, as far as they were concerned, uh, didn't match up with regards to what they considered it took to be a believer. And they, one of the accusations was that you don't have the divine nature because you don't have the fruits. And then they would say, and by their fruits you shall know them. It wasn't until much later that I found out that that quote, by their fruits you shall know them, is not talking about recognizing Christians. It's talking about recognizing unbelievers who are false teachers and their fruit is the false doctrines that they're teaching. But, in, but by any case, this says that you might have the divine nature. When you believe in Jesus Christ, there's a lot of things that happen that God does for you. But one thing you do not get automatically is a divine nature. You may acquire it, but it's through understanding and learning the precious and magnificent promises and so forth. Okay. So, do you want, if you want to live the life indeed, if you want to be a son indeed, if you want to add the exclamation point to your life, then the way to do it is to take hold of eternal life. And the way that we do this, you know, we go back to this over and over again. And if there was some other way, I think that I would find it by now, but there is no other way. It's to study and learn and grow consistently over and over. Why do you think that God didn't say, okay, every five years I'm going to give a final, and if you pass it, you're good for another five? Why? He could have designed it that way. Of course, for five years, everybody would be worrying. They'd be sinning, worried about the next final in five years. But the reason he doesn't do that is because we have to have our dose of doctrine every single day because we are so weak, we are so frail, we are so prone to succumb to our old sin nature that if we don't get our doctrine, then our, in our soul we will revert so quickly to that old comfortable wheel ruts that stinketh. That's who we are. That's why we have to continue to focus to understand, you've got to, have it. you've got to have your purpose in mind. You've got to be able to see it before you can reach, reach to it. And you can't see it. You can't reach for it if you don't know it's there. And there are so few churches today teaching anything other than morality as far as spirituality is concerned. Most, the great majority of believers have confused morality with spirituality. And it's not, there's very few churches that are teaching the spiritual dynamics that God has bequeathed to us in the New Testament. And therefore, these people don't see the goal. They don't understand the two types of inheritance, of being saved, of overcoming, of taking hold of eternal life. They don't know any of that because they're in ignorance. First Timothy six eighteen and 19. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves treasures of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Taking hold of that which is life indeed, you could just as easily say, so that they may take hold of the super grace life, that they may take hold of the experiential Eternal life. All these are meaning the same thing. God wants us to live the abundant life. He wants us to rise above our circumstances. Have you ever dreaded going out and getting the mail, finding what's there? Have you ever 
dreaded going. Well, I know when I was in school, when we go take a test, uh, you know, I was just talking about finals. Do you ever dread finals? God doesn't want us to dread anything. Just like Joshua, He wants us to face it, face it with courage, and be not dismayed. Don't be worried. Don't be dreading. Keep trusting. Keep growing. Here's the final thing, I think. Every place where eternal life is presented as something which can be obtained by works, it is contextually always described as a future acquisition. Conversely, whenever eternal life is described as something in the present, it is obtained by faith alone. That is the positional sense. Now, if you think that I have been drumming this positional and experiential to where it's coming out your ears, I, I don't think I've done it enough. When you get sick of it, that's when you're not going to forget it. And how, I hope you understand how important it is. I'd say the great majority of confusion and misunderstanding of Scripture could be clarified by being able to discern what is positional and what is experiential. Yes. I can't, I can't help but think about where Paul uh, says that he desired to feed you meat, but you're not even able to handle milk. Yeah. And with the ex uh, positional, uh, when you first obtain the, the positional by faith alone in Christ alone, all you can handle is milk. Mm -hmm. But then he says, I desire you to have feed, uh, the, the meat to move on, and that's... Uh, where the grasping on to the eternal life is. You, that's when you'll really start to move and grow when you start taking the meat. This is meat. Yeah, taking hold of it, right. You know, I don't think there's anyone here, and if there is, I would be surprised, that still struggling with eternal security. And unfortunately, that's where the great majority of Christians are today because you can ask them, are you going to heaven? And they say, well, I hope so. And they're, they're truthful. They're saying, I'm not sure. I hope so. I hope I'm good enough and all this. How crappy is that? And I don't think any of you are guilty of that. And I'm almost certain that y'all see why we're left here. We're left here so God can be glorified by blessing us immeasurably right under Satan's nose. And there's not a thing he can do about it. Satan can go everything possible in our path that God will allow him to. Circumstances can try to get us by the throat, but none of that can keep us from living the abundant life. There's only one person in this world that can keep you from living that abundant life, and you know who that is. The choice is yours. The thing of it is, the abundant life here on, in time on earth is just a little smidgen. It's just a little bitty taste of what's going to be in the future. We are so limited now in these bodies and in time, all the restraints are so much on us and God can still overcome all those. But when we get into glory, every, all the restraints are going to be off. We're going to see things. We're going to do things. The only thing about it is we can't go back and say, let's turn back time so I can get with doctrine on earth. It's going to be the same thing as the rich man and Lazarus. When he says, can you go back and tell them, to, don't come to this place? Can we turn the clock back and redo it? None of us will be able to do that. And many people, none of you and anyone that's listening to this, on wherever it may be, have no excuse because they're being warned. Now is the time to set up treasures for eternity. And the time is growing shorter every day. And we need to think about that. That's what we need to think about. We talk about the mundane, the trivia and everything. In our souls, we should be thinking, i got a day today. I don't know how many more I'm going to have, but I've got today. What can I do to store up treasure in heaven for all eternity? What decisions can I make? What must I do to take hold of eternal life? And when we do that, when we're thinking that way, Makes a big difference. Experiential eternal life is earned 
by learning and applying God's Word to the end of one's life. That's how long it takes. It is what we can expect if we do good works according to Romans chapter 2, verses 5 through 10. We went over that last time. Okay, if everybody is ready to switch gears, wow, I didn't know I was going to take three quarters of the time doing that review. That was going to be a quick review, but it is what it is. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6. Let's get our feet wet into this one because we've got a doctrine coming up that everyone needs to be able to understand thoroughly because there's going to be times, and there probably have already been times, that you needed the info on it, and we've got it. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6. Now, we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep aloof from every brother who leads an unruly life, and not according to the tradition which you received from us. We take it a, a pretty good pace here to begin with, the first part of the sentence. Now, we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I chose the verb here, we command, uh, to exegete. And the Greek word there is par angelomen. P-A-R-A-G-G-E-L-O-M-E-N. When you have two G's together, they have an N sound. Parangelaomen. It's a verb. It's the present active indicative. So this command wasn't made just once. It was a continuing command. It means to pass on an announcement, hence to give the word to some, someone nearby to advance an order, to charge or command. This verse indicates that some of the Thessalonian believers were out of line. The fact that Paul commanded them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ indicates how serious he was that they obey this command. It's not every command that he gave. In fact, it's fairly rare for him to command them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is a heavy... In other words, he's saying, upon the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, who and what he, he is. I am commanding you as a delegated messenger to tell you this. This carries a lot of weight. You better pay attention to it. That's what all is in view there. In the first letter, Paul urged them to admonish the unruly. This is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14. And in this letter, he commands them to separate from, from them. You see, something must have happened between letter 1 and letter 2. The first one, he was just urging them to admonish the unruly. And now he is telling them, he is commanding them. He's not urging them, he is commanding them by the Lord Jesus Christ to separate from those. Verse 11 reveals that some of them were lazy and did not mind their own business. But we'll get there. Now, we have the word here. I told you when we get to this, we would have to keep aloof. When was the last time you learned, used the word aloof? Probably been a while, huh? It's not a word we use too often. Usually when we talk about aloof, we talk about a snob, somebody that's like this. Well, here is a participle, present active participle. And it, it's... Uh, Purposely avoiding association with someone, to shun, to avoid, to keep away from, or to have nothing to do with someone. They were to keep on staying away from them. And well, this is the middle voice. I didn't change it up here. Uh, it's the... Uh, do you have your Libronics open? Either uh, uh, by Look at, at that uh, Stello... That's the Greek word for uh, keep aloof. And see if that participle is the present middle. I think it is. Okay, see, I didn't have it. I have it here. Uh, I have to change that. It's present active here. But it's the present middle uh, voice. I have it right in the notes. Uh, they would keep on doing it. Now, the middle voice indicates that they would be benefited by doing so. Uh, a verb that's in the middle voice, that's, it's reflective. Reflexive. It means that not only are the people that you are going to be dealing with are going to be benefited by it, but you're going to be benefited by it also. Many times when you, when you have a participle that's in the uh, middle voice, it's when you pray for someone. 
not only are they benefited, but you're benefited also for praying for them. And that's what we have here is a present middle, which means you're going to be uh, benefited by obeying this command to uh, have nothing to do with someone. It, keeping aloof isn't really, I don't think, a very good translation because when you are, uh, we're talking about separating from someone. And when you apply the doctrine of separation, you, you, act, you treat them as if they were dead. You have nothing to do with them. And that's stronger, I would think, than keeping aloof from someone. But anyway, that's how they translated it. Verses 14 and 15 gives the purpose of separating from a fellow believer. And let's just look at that, see what uh, verse 14 and 15 says. We're in 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 14. And if anyone does not obey our instructions in the letter... Take special notice of that man and do not associate with him so that he may be put to shame. Now, that's the purpose, is to have him be put to shame. But it's not just to shame him. The purpose is to redeem him. And yet, do not regard him as the enemy, but admonish him, him as a brother. Now, this is where we're going to end. This is what we're going to start next time. The doctrine of separation. Because that verse and the one that I just gave you, verse 14 and 15, is certainly uh, a needed doctrine. We need to have this doctrine. And we'll go over it in detail next time when we have fresh batteries. Let's close. Father, thank you for this time you've given us to focus upon your word. And that you've enabled us to rightly divide the word of truth to understand what is positional, what is experiential. These are just terms that we use in order to understand your word, just as dispensationalism is a word, but it is descriptive of being able to separate the time periods so that we're able to understand it. Just like rebound is just a word, but it explains a doctrine that is so critical, is fundamental. So we thank you for giving us the time and the teaching, your word, everything that we need in order to rightly divide it and pray that you will help us to meditate upon these things so that we will have more appreciation and can glorify you. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.